I'm wondering, is there a kid who weighs 60 pounds? Or close to it? Who? Okay, you weigh 60 pounds? All right, pay attention because I'm going I'm to use you as an example in just a minute, even though you're a visitor. All right, I won't embarrass you though, I promise. Um, so what I want to do is I want to go back and do a little bit of a review. And so if you open up your bulletin, um, if you did, 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 did everybody get a bulletin that wants one? Because uh, uh, this helps you to kind of review with us and, and stay up. These are really uh, more lessons, I would say, than anything else. And it's my effort to help you to understand why, if we have this good, great, loving God, there's so much bad stuff going on. And there are good answers to that question. And uh, that is a question that has been asked by uh, godly people, believing people, uh, for many, many years. And I've titled this series, I actually have a book that I've been working on forever. We'll see if, I, if it ever comes out. But I've titled this series, God is Great, God is Good, So Why All This Evil or So Why All This Bad? And I was teaching the kids how to uh, say this little prayer that I learned before I was ever a Christian. Uh, I wasn't, I guess I was raised in kind of a quasi-Christian home. Uh, we did believe in Jesus and believe in God. We just never went to church or anything like that. But my mom taught us to pray a prayer. So kids, I wonder if you remember this prayer or those of you that are visiting, if you remember ever praying this prayer. It goes, God is great. Say that. God is great. God is good. good. Now we thank him. And then you can add whatever. And we used to say for our food, amen. So let's just look at that. God is great. Well, to go through this review, God is. God exists. And so in your review there, God is or nothing is. The universe hasn't always existed. It came from somewhere. And God, by definition, has always existed, is all-powerful, is incomprehensibly intelligent and is a personal being who's capable of making choices without being previously caused. So he is the most likely, most reasonable cause for the existence of the universe. Number two in, in your review, in your outline there, God is great, right? So that's really the definition uh, for God uh, coming from Anselm in the Middle Ages. Uh, Anselm said, God is a being than which no greater can be conceived. So just by definition, God is great, right? And no greater being can be conceived. But what I tried to help us understand is God is also great because he is capable of limiting his power. And that is exemplified, shown, demonstrated in that he created you. You have a will. And with your will, God has permitted you uh, the ability, the capacity to either align with him, to cooperate with him, or to resist him. Now we're getting close to the reason why we are in a world that was created by this great, good, loving God, but nonetheless, which has bad in it. Human beings have been rebelling against God since the beginning. So in addition to showing that he can limit himself by creating us, he proved that he could limit himself by becoming one of us in the Son of God. Jesus came to earth and emptied himself and became a human being. Certainly he still retained his Godhood. He was fully God and fully man, but he chose to limit his power 
and to depend upon his father and to be a human being like every other human being. The difference is Jesus never sinned. The scripture says that we don't have a high priest as other high priests who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way but like we are, but was without sin. So Jesus was tested and tempted in every way that you are, but he never gave in to sin. But nonetheless, he was still fully human. And that proves that God is great, so great indeed, that he is capable of limiting himself by creating you and by coming as the son of God to atone for the destructive use of free will in the world, right? Number three in your outline, God proved this by creating uh, people with free will, and we said that, and by becoming human in Christ. Number four, apart from God, there is no objective basis for good. Now, that doesn't mean that atheists can't be good or pursue good. It's not saying that we can't, uh, from different religious uh, affiliations and beliefs, agree on good. It is to say that without God, there is no standard. There is no objective good that we can say, no, that's always good, and no, that's always evil. So we really rely upon God to help us to understand what good is. Good is intrinsic to his nature. It's essential to who he is. It's not just that God does good things. It's that God is good. His nature defines good for us. Just like God is love, and his nature defines love for us. Good is not a feeling. Oh, I feel good about that, I like that, and so I call it good, right? Any more than love is a feeling. Good is a state of being that comes from God. And so if you're going to be good, you have to align yourself with God. And this is why when we know what good and we know what evil is coming from God, it doesn't matter how the culture changes and how the culture tries to erase that we can always say, no, this is always good, this is always evil, because God is always God, amen? amen? The truth doesn't change because the truth comes from God who is unchanging, all right? Um, and then number five, God created everything with good purpose. When Genesis chapter one concludes, it says that God looked at everything that he, was, he had made, ending with human beings made in his image, and he said, that, indeed, it was very good. So that was the original intention. God created everything good and very good. And the week that I talked about that, I really looked at uh, fine tuning. That is that we can see that the universe seems to be set up to ultimately produce you, right? To result in intelligent life here on this planet. And we also saw that it is probably exceedingly rare if uh, if it is the case at all, that other planets like ours would exist because of all of the parameters that are necessary for intelligent life to exist on our planet, right? So God created everything with good purpose. And then number five, uh, though man is not the physical center of the universe, he seems to be, we seem to be, uh, this is the old designation. When we say man, we mean mankind, not man like a man, right? Um, Human beings are not, we're, we're not on planet Earth at the physical center of the universe because the universe has no center and it has no edges. But that's irrelevant. We appear to be at the center of its purpose. So now we're, we're understanding that regardless of how you may feel about circumstances in your life or what's going on in the world, God is good. Amen? Amen. God is great. 
And your feelings don't change that. And my feelings don't change that. So we need to reconcile ourselves to why this bad is in the world. Well, in the end, as I indicated last week, it's because we're living in a fallen world, right? So last week I talked about paradise lost and regained. And um, I haven't uh, included all of that there. But what I said was, this is not the world that was. Say that. That's Eden, right? The paradise of God, Eden. This is not the world that will be. Say that. That's heaven. We're, this isn't heaven yet. You know, it, my short answer to all of this, if people don't want to listen to the whole spiel, is, you know, when people ask me, well, why is there so much bad in the world? I say, well, this ain't heaven, is it? No, it's not. Okay, so this is not the world that was. This isn't paradise. This isn't Eden. This is not the world that will be. This isn't heaven. In fact, this is not even the world that would, could be or should be if Christians were simply following Jesus and, and living that out. This is a fallen world, right? And that is the next one in your outline there. So that's the review. That's where we've been. Now, I want to move forward. I want to look at this fallen world that still, nonetheless, gives evidence for the existence of God everywhere. But as we're going to see in just a moment, there's also evidence for God's absence. And there's a reason for that. Okay. So number one, uh, today's message is called Acts of God. And number one is nature is universal and consistent. And that's what indeed makes scientific discovery possible. I like these two verses. And this is how I open my chapter in the, in the book that I'm writing. The sun, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, listen, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So it is all sustained by this word of God, who is Christ. And then Matthew 5:45, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, for he, that is God, makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Well, let's look at how that applies. Um, so number one in your outline there, nature is universal and consistent. If nature's laws were not universal and consistent, science would be impossible. Experiments are worthless if we can't be assured that the same thing will happen again under the same conditions. Without universal laws of nature, life would be chaotic and very difficult if it were possible at all. What if water boiled at 100 degrees Celsius today, but under the same conditions tomorrow, it wouldn't boil until it reached twice that temperature? Well, if you know anything about Celsius, you wouldn't even have that scale because it is calibrated in accordance with the freezing and boiling points of water. Um, what if the North Pole, the magnetic North Pole, moved around just randomly all over the planet? Well, compasses wouldn't work, would they? Um, what if gravity fluctuated erratically? Now, this is where my little guy that weighs 60 pounds fits in right here. Um, let's say gravity suddenly became the equivalent to the gravity on the moon. Well, my 60 pound little fellow right here would only weigh 10 pounds, right? If you weigh 180 pounds on the moon, the moon is one sixth of the Earth's gravity, you would weigh what? You'd weigh 30 pounds. That's a quick way to lose weight, isn't it? Just go to the moon. All right. Well, how about this? What if suddenly gravity one day was moon gravity, but then the next day it was Neptune gravity, right? So moon strength gravity, if I weigh 180 pounds, I'd weigh 30. But see, on Neptune, gravity is much stronger. 
So as a 180 pound man, do you know how much I would weigh on Neptune? 3,078 pounds. You wouldn't even be able to get out of bed, right? You'd have to be awfully strong. You'd have to be as strong as one of the world's strongest men just to lift your body out of bed. So I'm thankful that gravity stays the way it is. Amen? Isn't that good? So nature's laws are universal and they're consistent and that's why we're able to have science. That's why I'm able to have, have a computer that I'm looking at here because we know how these things work because we've experimented and we see and God has established laws that the universe follows, that the earth operates according to. Storms, accidents, natural disasters, droughts, all these indiscriminately affect Christians, Jews, atheists, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, and agnostics. In short, everyone. Everything in the natural order works according to established laws. God is not the direct, that is the efficient cause of everything that happens. I've heard and read preachers who say that God makes the breeze blow in the branches of the trees. But when those who believe this way say God is in control, they see him as the immediate cause of everything. The trouble with this micromanaging approach to God's sovereignty is it ignores a fundamental reality. We're living on a planet separated from God. There's evidence of God's absence on earth and that reinforces the argument of atheists. However, as we've seen, there's also reason and evidence to believe in the existence of God. So exactly what's going on? Well, it's not just human beings in our sin that are fallen from God. No, it's the world that we live in as well as the earth we live on. Listen to, to what uh, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8. Um, he said, the creation was subjected to futility and bondage to decay. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers under the pains of childbirth together until now. Wow, okay. So number two in your outline uh, from that little bit that I just related to you is God doesn't have to micromanage creation. It operates according to laws that he established. So it is only after the Son of God returns to earth to reign over and transform everything and everyone that life will be what it should be. Until then, we're living in a broken and a dangerous world, a world from which we need to be saved. Amen? Amen. See, that's the thing. Oftentimes when we hear uh, about salvation, we think of being saved from hell, being saved from the bad place. But you know, when the apostle Peter gave the first gospel sermon, he said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, right? These people were saying, how can we be saved? And this is how he said that they could be saved. And then later he said, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So he was saying, save yourself from this generation of people who are all in rebellion against God, who are under the wrath of God, who are under the curse of death, who will ultimately be separated from God for eternity in hell and be destroyed. He said, you need to be saved out of that, right? Salvation, friends, it starts right now. Eternal life begins now. When you receive eternal life, you get God quality life in you now. It's not a someday in the sweet by and by life. It is something that you begin to take advantage of, I hope advantage of right now. When you are saved, God is going to begin to offer you opportunities to follow his son Jesus and to be under the direction of Christ. Salvation also means protection, amen? 
I should have put that in the outline, right? But I have a whole other chapter and we're not gonna get into that chapter because if I do all of my chapters, well, there's 52 of them and it would be one a week. So we'd be in this for a year and I don't know if you're that patient or not, all right? But nonetheless, salvation also means protection. So on uh, 911, which we're coming back up to 911 again. Um, by the way, there's a very, very good series on Netflix right now about 911. It's a, a documentary. It's a five-part documentary. I watched two parts of it uh, last night. In fact, I had I had ditched my Netflix, but I re-upped it just for that series. I got the cheap 899 version. I figured I can pay that just for the series and then off back out of it again. But nonetheless, um, I think we've forgotten, or well, younger people, you weren't even born yet, right? But we've forgotten how utterly tragic that was and, and how decimating that was to our country, right? But I remember in the wake of 911, I like to take numbers and look at how they correspond to scripture verses. 911, right? How about Psalm 91:1? He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. You know, if you're close enough, kids, if you're close enough to your parent or your caregiver to be in their shadow, you're pretty close to them, aren't you? All right, even if you're, even if you're your dad or your uncle or your grandpa, uh, you know, or, or your mom even is just really tall and casts quite a long shadow, you still have to be pretty close to your parent to be in their shadow. So what that scripture is saying is if, if you stay tight with God, you're going to be safe. Amen? You're going to be protected. Now, I know kids, there's just a whole lot going on out there that can be really scary. And, you know, I keep trying to help you guys understand that COVID, although it can be ridiculous and, and terrible, especially for older people, it's just not that detrimental to kids. Now, you might say, oh, pastor, be careful. No, I'm, I'm going to tell you. So we're in Garland, Texas, right? Uh, population coming up on 300,000 people. Do you know how many kids have died of COVID in Garland, Texas? None. Stop being scared. Do you know how many people under the age of 29 have died in Garland, Texas in the last year and a half? Two. Two young men in their 20s, both of whom had uh, other issues that they were dealing with. COVID's no joke, okay? But I want you to stop freaking out and being scared every time you turn around. Don't let everybody make you afraid of this thing. Be careful, right? Be healthy, but you don't need to be freaking out. But all of us in this room, I've been saying this since the beginning of the pandemic, you need to be saved and you need to pay attention to the Holy Spirit's leadership in your life. Instead of making a determination as to whether you're gonna get vaccinated or not or wear a mask or not because of what your tribe says, why don't you pay attention to what the Holy Spirit may be leading you to do, amen? All right. So you don't see us wearing masks in this room except a few people. That's what they are choosing to do. That's the leadership in their life. OK, but tomorrow I'm going to ask everyone who is in the parade with us passing out candy to wear a mask. Well, why am I going to do that? Because you're going to be getting close to people as you hand them suckers. Right. And we don't know that you might not have the COVID virus and it might not be affecting you and you breathe on somebody and then that would give it to them. But if you're wearing the mask, then it will keep you from breathing on them. It's also a way to help them to not feel scared. The people that might be out there along the parade route when you get close to them, because I don't want them to turn your sucker away and not want it. Right. So we can do that. But all along the way, as you make these decisions, rather than making them politically. Right. 
Well, I lean to the left. Well, I lean to the right. So if I lean to the left, I want to get vaccinated and I'm going to wear a mask. If I lean to the right, you know, that's these are my rights and I'm not going to do that. How about if we just pay attention to the Holy Spirit? Amen. How about instead of being scared and freaked out every time there is some major catastrophe, you just trusted the Lord. Can you imagine? Yeah, you don't have to imagine. You can be full of joy and you can be full of peace and you can have confidence and you can just live your life. Amen? Amen. You see, you can know that if you're saved, God also wants to keep you safe. And if we are going to rest in him and if we're going to pay attention to his spirit, I've said this before, you know, you may you may be driving home one day and you just get this overwhelming sense it, you know, maybe this is the Holy Spirit leading me that I need to take another route home. I, I think you need to pay attention to that. The Holy Spirit may be leading you away from something, right? We need to have that kind of relationship with God that uh, is giving direction to our life, right? So let's talk about miracles because I think some people um, are constantly praying for God to do a miracle, to suspend the laws of nature that he's established and perform a miracle in their personal life and their situation. God does sometimes act upon the world by superseding the laws of nature, which he established, and we call that a miracle. However, listen carefully, he does not regularly interfere in the natural order. And we don't like that. See, I want a miracle every other minute. I want to pray for the light to change because I'm impatient, right? I want to pray for my football team to win. God doesn't regularly interfere in the natural order, not even for good people, not even for his own people. God is unlikely to work a miracle because of the selfish prayers of someone who feels entitled to have things their way. I don't believe God makes it a habit of changing the outcome of a football game because I, pr I pray for my favorite team. Otherwise, the Cowboys would be winning all the time, and they don't. Amen. God is obviously not listening to me, all right? At least when it concerns that selfish prayer. Um, and he's not going to make it stop raining just so my family may have a nice picnic. Our prayers need to be less selfish, friends. Listen to what uh, a famous theologian and philosopher named William Paley said. He said, if the course of nature is the work of an intelligent being, should we not expect that he would vary the course of nature only infrequently and at times of great importance? Listen to what C.S. Lewis said, and I'm going to quote rather extensively from C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. And if you want to get that book, uh, these various quotes that I have cobbled together are found on pages 31 and 32. C.S. Lewis wrote, that God can and does on occasions modify the behavior of matter and produce what we call miracles is part of the Christian faith. But the very conception of a common, therefore stable world demands that these occasions should be extremely rare. But if matter is to serve as a neutral field, it must have a fixed nature of its own. If a world or material system had only a single inhabitant, well, then it might conform at any moment to his wishes. Trees, for his sake, would crowd into a shade. But if you were introduced into a world which thus varied at my every whim, you would be quite unable to act in it and would thus lose the exercise of your free will. So what happens when I'm praying for my football team to win? Go Cowboys! And somebody over here is praying, you know, go, I don't know, who uh, Chiefs, right? Go Chiefs, all right? So are the Cowboys going to win because I'm more holy and spiritual or are the Chiefs going to win because they're more holy and spiritual? Or is God just going to say, how about the team that plays the best is going to win? 
and we all just sit back and enjoy the game and stop bothering God with the outcome. Amen? Oh, you don't like that, do you? If I were preaching differently, then you might show up more often. C.S. Lewis continues, in a game of chess, if you don't play chess, say checkers, because this, this example will work the same. In a game of chess, you can make certain arbitrary concessions to your opponent. In other words, you, you can let them, you know, get away with certain things. And those would stand to the ordinary rules of the game as miracles stand to the laws of nature. So in other words, they, they, they move their piece and they take their hand off. And they're like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. And they want to move their piece back. Well, they just broke the rules. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about miracles, right? So he says, in the game of chess, you can make certain arbitrary concessions to your opponent, which stand to the ordinary rules of the game as miracles stand to the laws of nature. You can deprive yourself of a castle or allow the other man sometimes to take back a move made inadvertently. But if you conceded everything that at any moment happened to suit him, if all his moves were revocable and all your pieces disappeared whenever their position on the board was not to his liking, then you wouldn't have a game at all, would you? So it is with the life of souls in a world. That's us on earth. Fixed laws, consequences unfolding by causal necessity, causes and effects. The whole natural order are at once the limits within which their common life is confined and also the soul conditions under which such a life is possible. Wow. So maybe these preachers that are constantly saying, you need to pray for your miracle today are just trying to get you to give them money. Miracles can happen, but they're going to be exceedingly rare, even in the life of God's people. But there are other types of miracles other than those that result in the suspension or supersession of the laws of nature. Let's talk about providence, and I'm not talking about Rhode Island, okay? I'm talking about God acting within the world in accordance with the laws of nature, but perfectly timing and arranging his action to meet your need. God may act without superseding or suspending the laws of nature. Instead, as a master of time and space, he has arranged for things to occur in a specific order and with a specific purpose in mind. That's what we said a couple of weeks ago. We talked about the fine-tuning of the universe. It is fine-tuned on a razor's edge, and there are some 93 different fine-tuning parameters that absolutely must be the way they are, or we wouldn't have a world that was capable of sustaining intelligent life, right? So we could say that really the entire universe is the result of God's providence. This is God's activity. Um, providence in an individual's life, that is in your life or in my life, may be understood to be a coincidence that God has arranged. Say that. Say a coincidence, coincidence. that God has arranged. I tell people all the time, if you are a believer, you have no business talking about luck or fortune or coincidences. Everything in your life is providence. God is always trying to speak to you. God is always trying to use the world in which you live to guide and direct you as well as his word. That's what I told you a couple of weeks ago also, that the first book of God is the book of nature. Get out in nature and experience that and explore that and let God speak to you through that. I have a, a, a number of stories about this. But miracles of providence, friends, these are extremely common in the life of a believer. Well, that's just such a coincidence. And I say, no, that's providence. 
You need to find out what God is trying to say to you. You need to find out what God is doing within the laws of nature, right? And where do I get this? This is Romans 8, 28, right? Every time something bad happens to somebody, uh, somebody may pop up with this verse. It's a good verse though, right? All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. How many things? All things. I believe that it is essential for believers to recognize God's providential activity and to learn what he has in mind for each circumstance and event in our lives. Further, we can have confidence in a good, loving and powerful God to turn even the worst situation into something that works out for our good and his glory. God wants to take every single thing in your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, and he wants to turn it around for your good and for his glory. Friend, I just made your life bulletproof. Actually, I just gave you the, the truth that if you will put your firm faith in that, then you will begin to see miracles of providence in your life consistently. But see, what we would rather do is control the circumstances, right? Humans have become obsessed with control. We want everything to go our way. Science has been so successful at informing us about the natural world and giving us control over it that we're frustrated when we cannot do so. So right now, the temperature in this room is okay. It's starting to get warmer because there's some bodies in here. Our AC is not working the way it needs to work. We have two units and they both have to work in tandem or the room will only get to about 76, 77. Then once people start coming in, then it rises. So when this started to happen a couple of weeks ago, I immediately contacted our landlords and I contacted the AC people and they came out and it still wasn't fixed. So what I had to say was, I believe that there's providence in this. God's trying to teach us something, amen? So maybe he's trying to teach all of us that we need to be more faithful than coming into a 72 degree room, I don't know. He may be trying to teach you something and to, to be more persistent or consistent. Or maybe those of you that are just warm natured are like, well, thank goodness, I'm tired of freezing in this church. <laughs> but what I said to someone who texted me about this right after it happened was, well, I've done everything I can do. So this has got to be God's providence. We've just got to figure out what he wants to do. So the, the landlords have sent two different other AC contractors in and they're working on it. And I've just got to say, you know what? We're going to do our best. Amen. As, as uh, Rachel Wilson, uh, Pastor Craig's wife, who's normally up here singing, mentioned uh, on a Facebook post recently, she learned this actually, this little, this little bit of truth and statement from a musical group that came and played at our church one time. But the fella at the end of their, their song set uh, had this little teaching time and he said, we need to do the possible and God will do the impossible, amen? Yeah. You see, calling on God to work in your life doesn't mean that you just sit back and do nothing. You do what you can do. All right, so kids, let's say you got a test at school. Say, okay, God, give me the answers. How about you study? And then you say, God, help me to remember what I've studied. That would be a better prayer, right? And a better purpose. But if you don't study and you say, oh, no, I just trust God. And then you go in there and fail your test. Then you're going to be saying, well, God, you didn't help me. And God's going to say, I tried to help you. You didn't study. So this is kind of the way we are. I'm trying to make this real for kids. But nonetheless, um, Science is successful at informing us about the natural world and giving us control over it. And that's a good thing, but that makes us overly rely on our air conditioning. 
Can you imagine a hundred years ago? They had no air. And guess what? They still met. Amen. Yeah. In fact, funeral homes would pass out funeral fans. Have you ever seen the, the little ladies with their fan waving? Their, man, that's what I need to do is just get some funeral fans until we're done with this air conditioning issue. Hey, that's a good reason for you to get a bulletin. Use the bulletin as a fan, right? I don't know. I'm just trying to work with it. That's all I'm trying to do. But see, we want everything to go our way. I want everything to work out the way it's supposed to, which means the way I need it to work out. Well, C.S. Lewis, Lewis observed a connection between the motives of those who seek to manipulate reality through magic and those who use applied science. Listen to what Lewis said. He said, there is something which unites magic and applied science while separating both from the wisdom of earlier ages. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. And the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. And I think that many of us are right there. In fact, many of us pray for that same purpose. We want to make things go our way. Hey, I'm not pointing at you without pointing three fingers back at me. I am this way all the time and always have been. I want things to work. I want our air to work. I want our technology to work. I want it all to work. And when it doesn't, I'm frustrated. I'm thwarted. I feel like I'm being opposed, right? But what I have to do is I have to learn self-discipline. I have to... I have to seek wisdom. I have to find out what am I, what do I need to learn through this? I think all of us by now are, we're just like OD'd on COVID, right? It's like, you know, we're way past it, you know, a year and a half beyond this now. And we're still dealing with, you know, the Delta variant and all oh, there's the Mu variant. And there's a, you know, we're all just pulling out our hair and freaking. But I, I would say this to you. If you are a believer God is going to work this out for your good and his glory, and he has a purpose for it. Amen? I may not like it, and I don't. I'm tired of inconsistency. I'm tired of having to cancel things and postpone things, and I'm tired of not being able to do things that we want to do. But God's got a purpose, and we need to learn what he wants us to learn. So there exists a common belief, call it a suspicion, that those who are struck by a catastrophe or a physical infirmity have done something to deserve it. I was told by a devout believer, uh, pause for just a moment, those of you that are visiting or don't know me well yet, I have a significant problem in the hearing in my right ear. It's about 90% deaf and it also rings all the time. Every waking hour it rings. So I'm going to talk about this loud. This is how loud my ear is ringing right now. My ear is ringing that loud. And it rings at that pitch constantly and never, ever stops. That all happened in one day, December the 2nd, 2002. In the morning, I woke up, went about my business, did the same things I do now, read my word, drink my coffee, get started with my day. And I started feeling something like, it felt like my ear was closing. That's the best thing that I can wait to express it. It was like it was getting clogged up. By one o'clock that afternoon, I was completely deaf in this ear, and I have tinnitus in both ears. That means they both ring, but I don't hear it that loud in this ear because I can hear other sounds that interfere with it. However, those external sounds are no longer in this ear, but the horrible ringing still is. So by one o'clock in that afternoon, not only could I not hear, and not only was my ear shrieking, but I also had a significant problem with vertigo, and I had to lay in bed for a solid week. 
If I sat up, the room rolled. If I turned to the right, the room spun to the right. If I turned to the left, the room spun to the left. I had to crawl on my knees to go to the bathroom because if I stood up, I'd fall down. And that happened for about seven days. It was horrible. I had to go to the doctor feeling like that. And I went to these doctors and they, you know, performed the equivalent of witchcraft cures. So, you know, I had one guy that says, well, this is experimental, but here's what we want to do. We want you to lay on your side and then we're going to stick a syringe in your eardrum and we're, we're going to inject this solution in there. And I was like, oh, this is horrible, right? So I've had to live through this. Well, in the early days of this church, which 2002 was, I was told by a devout believer that my hearing loss in this ear is God telling me that I'm not listening. Okay, well, I suppose that could be. I, I really do need to pay attention to God's leading. However, God has a greater purpose than punishment when bad things happen to us. I want to say that again. God has a greater purpose than punishment. It's infantile for me to think that every time something bad happens to me, I'm being punished for something bad I've done. It doesn't work that way. Read the book of Job. Job wasn't doing anything wrong, and a lot of bad stuff happened to him. The end result was a greater revelation of God. That was the purpose for God uh, bringing that into his life. Now, I have an entire section in this book that covers this, and I don't know that we're going to do anything other than overview it, uh, perhaps next week or the week after. But the whole section is called, Not All Suffering is Created Equal or Evil. Sometimes suffering comes into your life as a means of transforming you and perfecting you and creating uh, a Christ-like attitude in you. Okay, so I had already planned on doing this message before Hurricane Ida blew in. And those of you that have been paying attention to the news know that it struck, uh, I guess, on the western side of New Orleans, uh, between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, kind of right where Lake Pontchartrain is. Um, exactly 16 years after Hurricane Katrina. And it was a stronger storm. That is, Ida was a stronger storm than Katrina. Now, thankfully, they had really, really bolstered uh, the, uh, the, the walls surrounding the city, right? The, the dikes, if we want to call them that, so that Pontchartrain didn't flood and the whole city didn't flood. In fact, as a matter of fact, there are more people who died once Ida became a tropical storm and moved up the East Coast. More people died in New York than died in uh, New Orleans. But Hurricane Katrina destroyed New Orleans in 2005, and many people lost their lives, and many, lost, many more lost their homes. Then, as I mentioned, on the 16th anniversary of Katrina in 2021, Hurricane Ida came ashore and took out the power grid of the Big Geezy. So that's something you need to be praying uh, about right now for those folks. It's hot and humid in New Orleans, and they have no power. Right? So we need to be praying for those folks. Um, a tornado swept through Garland and Rowlett the day after Christmas in 2015. Do you all remember that? Yeah. So Miss Mary and I were right here in this building. She was cleaning. It's like a Friday night, I think. Wasn't it Friday? I want to say it was Friday. It might have been Thursday. And uh, in fact, she couldn't get in her van, so I had to break in her van. I know I'm a criminal. Um, <laughs> And uh, then we, you know, the, the alarms are going off and it says, a tornado's coming, oh my word. And so we just, we were back there in that hallway because that's, you know, kind of like the best, there's a big stairwell that goes there. And uh, yeah, the, the hurricane, the hurricane, excuse me, the tornado ripped through and took out about 600 homes in uh, Garland and Rowlett and killed five people. Well, were these natural catastrophes sent by God? 
So they're sometimes called acts of God, right? Is the Lord trying to say something to us? Well, as I said earlier, the Lord is always seeking to lead and to speak to you and to teach his people. However, the answer is not as simple as, well, God's just punishing our sins. You know, that part of Rowlett and Garland just must have been in sin. That's what it is. Well, New Orleans, that's the big easy. No wonder hurricanes struck them twice. Well, if you're going to go by that logic, then there are plenty of cities that should have just, you know, gone Sodom and Gomorrah years and years ago, right? Um, these storms and catastrophes, did they only affect the property of sinners? Oh, well, yeah, technically we're all sinners. Did they only affect the property of non-Christians? No. Um, they affected the property of everyone. In fact, I can remember the, the tornado um, that there were a number of Christian homes that were decimated by that. So hopefully your answer to that question is no. God isn't dropping a storm on only people that he's angry at, right? It's a very, very uh, infantile way of thinking. So I'm sure good people died, and I know that there were Christians in the two, 2015 tornado uh, that lost everything. But did God work in people's lives during and after these catastrophes? And the answer is yes. The Garland Rowlett tornado struck the day after Christmas of 2015. Do you all remember that? Now, for some people, that can seem kind of cruel. I mean, it's Christmas after all. However, what you need to realize is that also meant that a lot of people weren't home. The death toll could have been much higher had it struck on Christmas Day while everybody was home. All right. Um, as a result, many deaths were likely averted. Did God offer protection to those who were praying and paying attention to his spirit's leading? I believe so. That's why I think you need to pay attention to the Holy Spirit. Bad things are going to happen, but you can pay attention to the spirit's leadership. It doesn't mean that you might not catch some of that bad and some bad things might not come into your life and you need to learn from those things. But it does mean that God is seeking to protect us if we're paying attention. The problem is a lot of people's faith is just presumption. You know, well, yeah, I, I know God's there and he's, you know, he's going to take care of me. I don't worry about it. But you need to pay attention to him and you need to do the possible and rely on him to do the impossible. Right. Um, so there's a really good example that I'll, I'll conclude the, the message with today of Jesus healing a man born blind. Uh, he healed this man born blind whom the people of his day presumed had done something to deserve it. So I'm trying to move us away from this idea that God's just punishing New Orleans again or God was just punishing, you know, these people over there, but he didn't punish me. OK, how about this? Uh, the power grid went out in Texas in February. You all remember that, right? OK, how many of y'all were sitting at home freezing during that time? Well, that's because you're sinners. The power didn't go out here. I was warm. If y'all weren't so steeped in sin, your power would have been on. No. What I did is I offered the opportunity for people that wanted to come here and get warm, along with their snakes and rabbits, to come here and get warm. Yes, we did have snakes and we did have a rabbit. He was called a free range rabbit. And I said, he may free range in one of the bathrooms back here. Right. So uh, Jesus, the man born blind. This is from John chapter 9, and this is verses 2 and 3. As he went along, that as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, 
But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Wow. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Amen? Why, God, why has this happened to me? So that the works of God might be displayed in your life. Amen? So uh, the story is, is lengthy. Jesus, in fact, did heal the man born blind. The man born blind was called to uh, appear before the religious officials. And they said, well, you've been steeped in sin. Who are you to lecture us? And they sent him on his way. And he came and appeared before Jesus because uh, he didn't know who Jesus was. He was blind when Jesus healed him and then Jesus walked away. So he didn't even know what Jesus looked like. Didn't even know who Jesus was. So he comes back to Jesus and Jesus has heard that they've kicked him out of the synagogue, which was a big deal in their day. Um, this is John 9, 32 through 38. Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Now this is the... Uh, New Testament, this is Jesus speaking in a way of pointing to the Old Testament where Son of Man meant the Messiah, the Christ. Okay? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. Physical eyes. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Now, he saw who Jesus was spiritually. You see, there were plenty of people that saw Jesus' physical form and didn't believe that he was the Son of Man, the Messiah. There might have been even those who were healed that never believed Jesus was the Son of Man. He, Jesus healed 10 lepers, right? Those that had the skin disease. And they were all walking toward him and he healed them and they all went away happy, but only one man came back to give him thanks. You see, I think a lot of times God is working in our lives and we're not giving him credit for it. God is always working, but he's typically working within the natural order. And those are miracles. They're miracles of providence, but God is working. So um, God has been working all along in all of our lives. The question is, are we going to recognize the work of God in our lives? So don't presume to understand why seemingly bad things have occurred in your life or in someone else's life. Trust that God is good and He's loving and that He's at work even when we cannot see it. The world is separated from God by sin, but that doesn't mean that He is not at work in the world. Christ is at work all around us through the Holy Spirit, seeking to save those who are lost. God rested from His work of creation on the seventh day, but Jesus said, My Father is still working and I am working. So as a believer, you have to employ the eyes of faith to see God working in a world that is separated from the manifest presence of God. That is, God is not naturally making his presence known to everyone, but he will make his presence known to you if you will choose to call upon his son, Jesus. So as a believer, God is still working within me to make me like his son instead of working for me to make things the way I want them to be. Oh, wow. That's a good sentence, Daryl. Good. I, I wrote a good sentence there. All right. 
As a believer, God is working within me to make me like his son instead of working for me to make things the way I want them to be. See, some people's idea of God is he's like the holy concierge. Oh, God, God, could you come here for just a moment? Uh, there are some things that I need you to do in my life. I, I need a new car. I need a new home. I need some new clothes. I need you to do all of these things for me. God's not the divine concierge. He's trying to make you more like Jesus, not work for you to make things the way you want them to be. In fact, what we see is when people get everything the way they want it to be, they have a real tendency to ignore God and become intolerable human beings, right? So um, I need to concentrate my prayer life on seeking God's presence and wisdom to bring me through the storm instead of demanding that he stop the storm. And I can give you an example here, but I don't have time. Um, do I want my best life now instead of praying to my Father? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do I want to be happy when God wants me to be holy? Uh, the Father is working to transform me into the image of His Son. And that is a process which involves suffering and self-denial, faith and trial. God is always working. You can perceive that work by faith when you open your heart and you open your mind to Him.